Well, this morning, as I jump into Mark 2, this is my first time preaching here, so I thought I would start with just a picture of my two kids. Now, it doesn't actually relate to the sermon at all, but I find that when you show cute kids, it makes me a lot more likable. (laughs) And when that happens, you're more likely to listen, to laugh at my dry humor, and to not fall asleep. So I only get to play this card once, and here it is on my first Sunday preaching. You might hear about them a couple of times, so I did want to show their picture so you can know who I'm talking about. Well, my family, we recently did move to Barkersville. And now in the past few years, we've actually been through Barkersville a number of times. You know, we went to the main stops. We drove on 135 and 144. We had a few restaurants that we knew about that were our favorites, like Chicago's Pizza, Taxman, and Johnson Barbecue. And so we assumed that's Barkersville. Those couple of things we know about it, that's all there is to it. And we were right. Just kidding, I'm not going to go there, we love it. But it's easy to assume you know a place because you know a couple of the main things about it. But now that we live here and we're driving on other roads and going into different neighborhoods, we're meeting people, trying new restaurants, going to the farmer's market, we realize that the longer you're at a place and the more you get to know the details, the more you see that there's something to it. Those details are what make a place what it is. But the problem is, when you think you know a place because you know a couple of the details, you stop trying to learn about it, and you assume my view of this place is what it is. And a similar problem happens when it comes to our view of Jesus, or how we think about Jesus through the stories in the gospel. We know a few things about Jesus, we've heard stories about Jesus, and we tend to then ignore what's going on. Even with stories in the gospel, like we'll experience in Mark 2, We read it and we say, yeah, 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 I know. Jesus heals the next person in his path. I get it. But what we miss are that the details are cluing us into a bigger picture of who Jesus is and what he's done. And so what I'm praying for today as we're in Mark 2, and really as we go through Mark in the next several months, is that he would truly open our eyes to see who Jesus is and what he's done. So my encouragement is over the next several months, to allow God to stretch your mind and heart by showing you the grace and the glory and the goodness of Jesus. Now, two weeks ago, Scott talked about the authority of Jesus in his preaching. Last week, Keith talked about the power of Jesus, which we access through prayer. And this morning, I'll focus on the forgiveness that is found in Jesus. If you have a Bible, go to Mark 2. We'll be in verses 1 to 12. And Mark tells us here a story about where two key ideas emerge. We see first in this story about a paralytic man and his friends that their faith drives them to Jesus. And then we also see that their forgiveness is found in Jesus. The main idea today of of the sermon will be when we draw near to Jesus in desperate faith, he draws near to us with power and help. Well, if you're able, willing and able to stand, I would encourage you to stand as I read Mark 2. We'll be in verses 1 to 12. It says, And when he, Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. 
And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Well, the first thing we'll see is in verses 1 to 4, that the desperate run to Jesus in faith. So Mark tells us that Jesus is here, he's preaching the word in a home, and it's maxed out. So maybe 50 people were there, but the doors, the windows, everyone was covering the home. And the people are so tightly crammed in there that there's no way this man on his bed and his four friends would get through and get to Jesus. Now we don't have many details about this man, but we know what some of the common challenges would have been for a paralyzed person in Jesus' day. He would have to depend on everyone else, their kindness, their charity for anything he needed, whether that be food or basic tasks or getting from one place to another. Because of his condition, he likely lived in poverty. Like many with diseases or illnesses at the time, he might have been an outcast on society, never brought in. We don't know the details, but we know he would have faced many challenges. But one thing we see here he has going for him is he has good friends. His four friends not only carry the man on this bed all the way to where Jesus is teaching, which would have been a task, but when they find opposition there, they don't give up, even though the crowds are blocking the entrance. So what they do is they do whatever it takes to get their friends to Jesus. And here what it takes is carrying their paralyzed friend all the way to the roof, tearing the roof open, and then lowering him down in the path of Jesus. Now this was not only a lot of work, but it was embarrassing. They were in someone else's home and they tore it up. They could make a commotion and distract from Jesus' teaching. All eyes are on this one man that's in the middle of the room. But they were desperate. And when you're desperate, you do desperate things. You're willing to do whatever it takes, to consider the cost, to jump over any hurdle, to suffer embarrassment, and to make sacrifices. Now today, we usually fear looking desperate or being embarrassed, but ask, what would it take for you to not care what others think because you're desperate? What would you do if you could meet your favorite celebrity? If you could have a free vacation or great prize when a year's a free Chick-fil-A? Or how would you act if you received an eviction notice or if you lost your job or if someone in your family was dying and you could help them? Now one thing I think of when I think of desperation is what the first year of parenting is like. Now I remember when we had Lily or when my wife had Lily, um, how desperate we were for sleep a couple of months in. What happens is after several weeks, the weeks just pile on, and you are just so exhausted. You are desperate for sleep. 
Now, I remember nights where I would go into, my wife, into the kid's room, my wife would say, I'm just going to hold the baby here. I'm not going to fall asleep. Come in a couple hours later, and there she is, passed out, baby in her arms. I also remember this kind of game you play with a newborn, where you know you have to rock them. You need the, them to be in a deep sleep so that they, they don't wake up when you put them down. Otherwise, if they wake up, you have to start over again, and that is just soul-crushing. So I remember playing this game where you try to rock them into a deep sleep, and yet you are so exhausted yourself that you risk it and you put them down, sometimes a little early. You do whatever you can to get any sleep. Or maybe it's 2 a.m. and you go on Amazon and you buy whatever machine promises to make them sleep. You pay for that machine, pay whatever it costs, you even pay same-day shipping. You're desperate. Well, again, as I said, today we often fear desperation, but we know that when we do get desperate, we go and do desperate things. But what desperation does for us, desperation actually helps clear out the things that don't matter. So whether that's the cost involved or what people think of us, and the hope of help is just so powerful. And honestly, I think if there's something we need more in the church today, it's desperation. We don't want to appear desperate, weak, or broken. So we do whatever we can to put up this mirage of I have everything together. We read our Bibles when we have spare time. We fit in God when it's convenient. And this lack of genuine spiritual desperation causes us to be self-sufficient and see Jesus as a bonus in life rather than as the priority in life. And yet, in our desperation, there we see how much we need God's grace and mercy, and it's there that God shows up with his mercy and his grace. So spiritual, spiritual desperation that leads us to the feet of Jesus, that's something to cultivate, not something to crush or to cover up. And here in our passage, desperation and faith are what drive the paralytic and his friends to Jesus. Notice in verse 5 again it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Notice it's interesting. It doesn't say when Jesus saw his faith. It says when Jesus saw their faith. Now that could just be the four friends or that could be all five of them. But they believe that Jesus can do something for him that no one else could do. And so they do whatever it takes to get into the path of Jesus. Now, this is one of the main points of the entire story. And a little bit, we'll look a lot about what it tells us about Jesus. But don't miss here the role of faith in us experiencing Jesus. Faith here is believing God is who he says he is, but also then acting on that faith, putting the weight of our trust on what he says. Faith isn't just believing truths about Jesus, though that's essential, but it's responding to those truths by obeying and acting and responding. No doubt some of the people in that room would have believed things about Jesus, but that's different from this group that actually staked their life on going to Jesus. They climb up the roof, they tear it open, and they lower him down. And so we see here that faith is belief, but belief in action. What we see in the paralytic and his friends is what we need in our lives, desperation and faith. Or if it helps you to see this in terms of a formula, we see in Mark 2 that spiritual desperation plus active faith equals experiencing Christ. When we are desperate, 
and we stop trying to run our own life, and we also have this faith that leads us to turn to and to trust in Christ, it's there that we see the power and the grace of Christ. This is the recipe for transformation, for breakthrough, and for experiencing God. When it comes to what does Jesus need from us to work with us, it's not a lot. All we need is what they have here, desperation and faith in him. What Jesus immediately sees in this man is not his disease, not his uncleanness, not the hole in the roof. What he sees is their faith. And he's not frustrated. He's not mad. He's not disappointed about what they've done. He loves what he sees in them. When he sees their desperation, when he sees their weakness, when he sees their need, he responds with compassion, with grace, and with power. Dane Ortland in Gentle and Lowly says it this way. Before they could open their mouths to ask for help, Jesus couldn't stop himself. Words of reassurance and calm tumbled out. The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. So we see here that when our desperation and our faith drives us to Jesus, Jesus meets us there in faithfulness, gentleness, and power. What we'll see in verses 5 to, two, or 5 to 12 then is that Jesus also meets our deepest need. So if the first part of this message is about the man and his friends and how their faith leads them to Jesus, let's, let's see what the following verses actually show us how he responds and what he does. First, the end of verse 5 is interesting. Notice, if, again, if you have a Bible, verse 5. It doesn't end like you would expect. You might think verse 5 would go something like this. So they let the man down into the home where Jesus was speaking. And when Jesus saw their faith, he says to the paralytic, what do you expect next? You are healed. Or what he eventually says in verse 11, rise, take up your bed, and go home. But that's not what he says. In verse 5, he says not you are healed, but your sins are forgiven. His focus here isn't healing the man physically. His focus, and what he immediately goes to, is healing the man spiritually and I think Jesus focuses on the man's sin and his need for forgiveness rather than his physical healing is because that's what our greatest problem and our greatest need truly is and if there's something we learn about Jesus in the gospels and from his interactions with people it's that he doesn't settle for dealing with secondary matters when there are underlying issues he always goes to the heart of the matter even when it's uncomfortable, and he seeks to bring healing and restoration where it is most needed. And so in this story, we're reminded that our greatest problem is sin. There's nothing that will wreak havoc on your life like sin. There's nothing that will ultimately destroy us like sin, which means there is nothing we need more than the forgiveness of sins that Jesus provides. What we ultimately need isn't a healer. It's not a powerful political figure. It's not a wise sage or a great teacher. It's not a life coach who can cheer you on. And it's not a genie who can grant you wishes. What you and I need is a savior. As often happens, our problems are bigger, deeper, and more pervasive than we ever imagined. Now, my wife and I mentioned we are new to the area, and we recently bought a newly constructed house. We saw the backyard, and we thought, oh, yeah, it needs some work, maybe some 
watering, maybe some seeds planted. But now that we've moved in, as we've got closer, we realize this house needs a lot of work. So I have a picture here of my backyard. If anyone wants to, yeah, I know. <laughs> if you want to experience what it was probably like for Israel to be in the desert in Exodus, just come walk around in our backyard. So we've learned that we don't just need to water it, we need to dethatch it. The thousands of pebbles and rocks that we see need to be pulled out. The ground needs nourished. I'm finding plywood and plastic pipes and metal things in the yard that I'm having to take out. And then we do need to plant seeds and water it. But the problem is bigger than we expected. If I just water the lawn, all I will have is mud and wet rocks, not healthy soil and growing grass. And a major point of the Bible's storyline and the Bible's theology is to help us see that the severity of our sin and the widespread destruction of sin is bigger than we realize. The Bible is telling us that you don't just need a little help, you need saving. That we don't just need a little boost in life or occasional blessings sprinkled in, we need rescue and we need restoration. So Jesus, Jesus did not come just to teach you a few good truths or make you a better person, though he does that. Jesus didn't come just to bless your life, though he does that too. The reason Jesus came is to do the thing that only Jesus could do, deal with our sin. And that's why when Jesus looks at this paralytic man, the first thing he says to them is the greatest thing he can say to him. Your sins are forgiven. And Jesus can say this to him now because he knows what he will do for him later. Here in Mark 2, we have an early shadow of the cross looming over the account. Jesus says to the man in Mark 2, I forgive you because he knows in Mark 15, he will be crucified in our place as the spotless lamb of God. And he knows in Mark 16, he will be the roaring lion who stands over sin, death, and evil as a victor. If you're here and you have never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, I want to tell you, Jesus can do for you what he did for this man in Mark 2. He can provide forgiveness of sins. All you have to do is believe in him, to receive him, and to trust in him. And if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, then know this gift is for you. Don't forget what you have in Jesus. That when you get Christ, you get the fullness of forgiveness and redemption through his death and resurrection. That there's no need for us to pay for our sin. No need to work to clean ourselves up. No need to wonder, does God love me? Can I go to God? The blood of Jesus is the answer to all of those questions. We're told if we have Jesus, then there is no condemnation left. That the wrath is removed. That guilt is gone. That shame, that the feeling of dirtiness, that the fear of can I go to God, those are all addressed through the blood of Jesus. That if I have Jesus, I have God's smile upon me fully and forever. So remember and rest in the finished work of Christ. His work, not yours. We see also as we continue then in verses 6 and 7 that there were other people in the room. Not just Jesus and not just listeners, but we have scribes, and Luke 5 says that there were also Pharisees present. Now these were religious leaders of the day who were supposed to be committed to the Old Testament, especially the law of God. And they were also charged to care for God's people. 
But the tragedy in Mark's gospel and in the gospels in general is that because of pride and blindness, they seek their glory more than God's glory. Follow along or listen to verses 6 and 7 to notice how they respond to Jesus. It says, now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So Jesus forgives this man. He's about to heal this man. And these people are irate. Now in some sense, this is understandable. I know we like to bash the scribes and the Pharisees. But if on a Sunday morning, someone was standing out there in the lobby by the coffee, and they just kept saying to people who were getting their drink, hey, I forgive you. Hey, your sins are forgiven. We'd probably think they were a little bit weird. And so free application, don't do that. Don't stand by the coffee and just tell people, hey, your sins are forgiven. Bonus application. But the reason the scribes and the Pharisees react the way they do is because they know from the Old Testament only God can forgive sins. And so what Jesus is saying here is only okay if he is God. Only the one who has sinned against can forgive. Maybe it will help you to think of it like this. So imagine one night at our dinner table, that cute little girl, our daughter, who can have her sassy moments. Let's imagine that she yells at my wife, that she says something terrible to her, that she throws her plate on the ground, smashes it, and she marches up to her room. Now, she would have sinned against my wife because of what she said and did against her. Now, imagine my daughter. She comes down the stairs, and I look at her, and I say, hey, it's okay, Lily. I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. Come down. It's fine. We're all good. Now, my wife would probably look at me with one of those looks that says, hey, let's rewind and try that again. (laughs) And she would be rightly upset and appalled because our daughter wronged her. Only the person who has sinned against can forgive. I'm just an observer. I don't have the authority or the ability to provide forgiveness. Only my wife could do that. And so that's why the scribes, the Pharisees, they're so shocked and offended by Jesus' words. Jesus is claiming to be God. Jesus is claiming to be the one who was sinned against and also the one then who can forgive sins. Notice how he responds to their questionings in verses 8 and 9. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Another way to think about this then is, which is easier to cure, the root problems or the symptoms? Which is easier to fix in a home, foundation issues or popped nails? If you're a basketball coach, which is easier to fix, someone with terrible form altogether or someone who just needs to follow through more? Or if you're an Obi-Wan Kenobi fan like me, who is the bigger problem? Is it Darth Vader? Is it the interrogators under his control? Or is it Emperor Palpatine himself? (laughs) The point here is that not all problems are equal problems. And what Jesus is saying here is that if Jesus can address the root issue underneath all problems, which is sin, then he can handle the ripple effects of sin in our life. Jesus knows that they're questioning his authority in words. And rather than getting into a debate about his ability to forgive, all Jesus does is he heals the man. He demonstrates, I have power and authority. 
And yet, even though Jesus heals the man, Jesus allows him to get up and to walk home, which is awesome, Jesus wants everyone to know that the greater need here and the greater miracle here is that he forgave the man, not just that he healed him. So the question here of what's easier, it's also a subtle way of saying that if Jesus can tell this man to pick up his bed and go home, then do you imagine there's anything too difficult for him? For us today, if Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, then do you think he's powerless against your troubles at home or at work? Against your fears? Against your stress with finances? Or against whatever it is you're facing this week? What's easier, that he can help you with your burden you wonder if he can carry? Or that he can deal with the sin, with death, and the devil in our world? Jesus can handle any of those. They're all easy to him. What we've seen so far then in this back and forth exchange is a picture of what Jesus wants from us through the man and his friends. He wants desperation and he wants an act of faith that causes us to go to Jesus in our need. And then what we see from Jesus is when we do that, the way he responds to our faith is with compassion, power, and his presence. Well, as we close, um, which means there's like 10 minutes left, but I want to close by just applying this, by asking, what does this mean, or so what, or what do we do with this? So I have three summary applications. The first is that Jesus came to solve our greatest problem, sin. So if sin is our greatest problem, as I said, then our greatest need is for a Savior who deals with our sin. And so part of the point here is don't confuse the needs in your life that are central from needs and wants in your life that are important but secondary. We all have this thing in our life we think we're missing to be happy or to be fulfilled. For this man in Mark, he likely thought that all he needed was to be healed, to be able to walk. And that's a good thing. Being able to walk, this miracle he received is an awesome thing. And yet it doesn't provide forgiveness and it won't fulfill this man. And that's why Jesus heals him, but he prioritizes the deeper need in his life. Well, you and I, or at least I, am like this paralytic man. I approach life, I approach God, and I think there's this big need in my life, this big desire. And if God would take care of that, that's the real issue, then I could be happy. Then life would be fulfilling. Then I would have satisfaction, security, or meaning. We think we need a better job, a better marriage, happier kids, more money, that accomplishment we're running after, more time, better health, or fewer trials. And all of those can be good things, and all of those are things worth bringing to God in prayer. But they are not the deepest need in our life. They're not even the deepest longings in our heart. Once we have them, our relationships will still be affected by sin. We will still eventually get sick or die. We still live in a fallen, broken world. And we still have sin in our hearts so that the desire for more or the next thing is still going to show up. The deeper longing, the deeper need in our life is knowing and having a real relationship with the God who made us and made us to live under his care and direction. But the problem is this thing called sin. Sin not only condemns us, sin not only corrupts us, But sin cuts us off from the source of true joy and peace we're looking for, the one true God. And this is why Jesus says later in Mark 10, he says, this is the reason I came, 
Jesus says, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. So Jesus does many incredible things for you and I as his followers. But if we miss this fact that the greatest blessing from God isn't material and it's not physical, but the greatest blessing is forgiveness and new life through Jesus, if we don't see that, then we totally miss the point of why Jesus came and what he has to offer you. We fail to understand desperately our needs and our desires, and we settle for wanting Jesus to just to tidy up some of the troubles in our life. We settle for asking for a gift from the king when the king offers us into his kingdom to have life with him. Second thing we see also is that Jesus uncovers what we want to hide so he can cover it with his blood. This second application is really just an extension of the first one I just mentioned. Because Jesus came to address the real needs, hurts, wounds, and pains in our life, he must first point out the pains and the problems in our life before he can heal them. Jesus shines a light on the things in our life that we don't want to see or don't want to face, not to punish us, not to embarrass us, but to set us free. In John 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he brings up her shame about all her failed marriages, not to demoralize her, but because he knows that's the way she sees herself now, that that is the biggest need in her life. And so he must bring this up, this area of pain, because healing and hope can be given there. Jesus wants to redefine her life, not about her past, not about her, around her failures or around her sin, but around Jesus. One of my favorite books, it's called The Imperfect Disciple. Jared Wilson writes this. It's interesting how often the areas of our inner selves we strive the most to hide from Jesus are the ones he's most interested in. And it's amazing that these things about ourselves we hope he doesn't see are the very things he means to cover with his grace. And so this morning, what is it that you're trying to hide, ignore, bury, or not deal with? What are you wanting God to just leave alone that he wants to touch with his redemptive, restorative grace? Is it insecurity? Is it loneliness? A hidden sin? A wound or pain from the past? Is it depression? Anxiety? A temptation in your life that you're embarrassed about? Or some failure from your past that you continue to, to define yourself by? Friends, the enemy wants you to think that these are the things to hide from Jesus and keep in the dark. But the reality is these are the things Jesus wants to bring in the, to the light so he can give you healing, freedom, and redemption. Rather than covering these things up from Jesus, we need to let these things be covered by the blood of Jesus. And this leads us to our third and final application. That Jesus then invites us to respond to him so we can receive help from him. Mark is all about, throughout his gospel, action and response. He shows us the actions, the teachings, the words, the healings of Jesus, and then he shows us how people respond, good, bad, or indifferent. And he's doing that to present a question to pose to the readers, to the audience, and to us today, how will you respond to what you've seen about Jesus? Like the paralytic man and his friends, Jesus, Mark wants us not just to learn about Jesus, but to respond to Jesus. 
the way this section ends in verse 12, with all the people around being amazed and awed by Jesus is ultimately what he wants to see in our life. And so Mark will tell us story after story after story of what Jesus said and did. So we notice all the ways his grace and his glory and his goodness shine and are available to us. And then as we see him and we know him, our hearts begin to worship him. And when we worship him, that's when we begin to obey him and to trust him when it gets hard. And so the Bible, the Bible is holding up Jesus to us. It's showing us crystal clear ways who Jesus is, not just so we learn facts about Jesus, but so we love him and we trust in Jesus, so we respond to him in faith. So again, the question for you is, how do you need to respond to Jesus today? Do you need to stop resting in your performance for him and rest in his promises to you? Is there a trial in your life, something painful or hard or challenging that you're walking through that you need to trust him with? Do you need to turn the worries and the fears in your life over to him, believing that if he can conquer sin, that he can carry your burden? Do you need to stop playing with sin, but to confess it and seek forgiveness and freedom? Or are you here today and you're in need of the hope, the refreshment, and the joy that is found in Jesus? Not all of us have to respond in the same way to Jesus today, but the call is to respond in some way. What we see from Mark 2 is that as we draw near to Jesus in desperation and faith, that Jesus will draw near with help, with power, and with his presence. Would you pray with me? God, we do come into this room with all kinds of needs, wants, and desires, and we are thankful that Jesus meets us there, that Jesus provides the forgiveness of sins, that Jesus provides hope in the midst of darkness, that Jesus can answer and help with and be present in any trial we are walking through. So God, we pray even this morning as we sing this next song that you would fill our hearts and minds with the glory of Jesus. Help us this week not to forget all that we have if we have Christ. I pray it in his name. Amen.